well, to be human in a fallen world is to ache. And I think when we maybe slow down long enough to actually feel, sometimes we just get going and get cranking and it's hard to even know what's going on inside of us. But when we slow down long enough to feel, um, we all feel it. Uh, and not all of our aches uh, are the same. Uh, this week I was reading about a man named Vaughn Alex. Maybe you caught a bit of his story. Uh, his 20-year-old ache uh, that I've labeled regret. And I was reading about him. He was a, a ticket agent for American Airlines at Dulles International Airport on September 11th. 2001. So we have all these 20-year 9-11 stories coming back out again. Uh, but his story caught me. His name, again, Vaughn Alex. And on September 11th, 20 years ago, Vaughn helped out two brothers who arrived late that day for their flight, Flight 77, which was the one that eventually crashed into the Pentagon. And these two brothers, they showed up late. They weren't supposed to make their flight and he, since he was training others there at the ticket counter, he used it as a teachable moment to show them how you help people who show up late get through to where they're going. And he noticed how frantic they were and how lost they seemed. And so he helped them get to where they were going. And those two brothers were the ones that hijacked the plane. And to add another layer to it, just the day before, this particular man booked a ticket for one of his good friends on that flight for her vacation. And so 20 years later, Von Alex grapples with the past. And he grapples with all of these what-ifs. What if I didn't let them on the flight? What if I just would have forced them to book another ticket? What if? What if? Now, most of our what ifs aren't on that scale or magnitude, but you know that feeling, don't you? When you replay the story, like, what if I would have done that differently? So we all can taste regret. Again, on a very much smaller scale, uh, I feel... I feel the parental ache right now a bit. About a month ago, we sent our oldest daughter off to college. She's in Washington, D.C., on the other side of the country. And not only do I miss her, I'm also discovering all the different ways in which her absence changes the dynamic in our home. And my mind races now, and maybe those of you that have raised kids, you've experienced this, but now I'm asking these questions. Over the past 18 years, did I do enough? Did I raise her well? Will she successfully launch into life and the world? How did I do as a parent? And I feel that. I sat with a friend this last week catching up and he shared with me that he currently doesn't feel loved by God. And he said, I, like, I, know, I know that I'm loved by God, but I just don't feel it. And so for him, his ache is over that distance between his head and his heart. And he wants to feel the love of God and not just have it intellectual. Some people ache with disappointment. 
with failure, with loss. Other people ache with questions about faith, about gender, about sexuality, about belonging, about whether or not their beliefs will be accepted at the school that they go to. Still others feel the ache of racial strife in our world. Because we can't just get over it and stop talking about it. And they feel the ache of misunderstanding and of wounding and of heartache and hostility. Still others ache with doubt and depression and fear. Right? To be human now in this fallen world is to ache. And sometimes it's an ache that is just too deep. Too deep of groanings to even have words to express it. Do you know your ache tonight? And so as a result, to deal with our ache, which I think is a universal ache expressed in different ways, to deal with it, I just put some words on the page. We end up longing, searching, chasing, entertaining, binging, drinking, eating, fasting, medicating, swiping, scrolling, numbing, shopping, hoarding, fighting, crusading, bickering, detaching, isolating, obsessing, masquerading. Or if you prefer the religious version of that, serving, studying, devoting because of our ache. Now, some of you may be thinking, wow, Paul, melancholy much? Like, that dude needs some sun, a nap, and some sugar. (laughs) But I just want you to be aware of your ache. And I, I want you to be aware of the ways in which we try and cope with it. I don't know, how about you? Is there anything that I left off here that needs to be added? How, about, how do you deal with the aches? And again, you don't have to tell me what your ache is. But what, what, is there something else that needs to be added to the list? What do you do to deal with your ache? Anybody else? You can volunteer it. I'll repeat it loud for us all to hear. Distraction. Gaming? Distraction. Just distraction? Moping. Moping. Moping, yes. We mope, we mope in our aches. Okay, we just feel depressed and we respond to that, yeah. What else do you do when you ache? Anybody else? Take it out on <laughs> we take it out on others. Yeah. So in a second, I want to introduce our new series for the fall. <laughs> uh, and it actually is an upbeat one. But I really do think that unless we are honest with the ache we feel and the coping ways that we go about dealing with those things, then we're not really in a place to receive the good news or see it. Uh, In the words of C.S. Lewis, in responding to our aches, we are far too easily pleased. You remember the quote, maybe you've read C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory, 
He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. It's like, what if, what if our desires aren't too strong, but, but too weak? And what if we are far too easily pleased with lesser things, and we, we end up settling in our responses? And what if, what if we're content being formed and at times deformed by the world system and it causes us to give up on something that is actually more beautiful and more greater and more compelling and more of a wild invitation and we settle what what could that be what would that be and so this is the series that we're going to spend some time this fall in i'm calling it the Great Invitation. And if you've been around maybe the Bible or church, maybe you've heard of the Great Commandment before. The Great Commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. It's the Great Commandment. And then maybe you've heard of the Great Commission, which is to go and make disciples of the nations. I want to talk about the Great Invitation. So if you have a Bible... And once you open up, or a Bible app, I'll have the verses on the screen, but turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verse 1. Before I read this passage to you, I want to remind you just a little bit of what we're diving into, a little context for this scene. Uh, John 13 through 17 is a distinct, distinct section within the Gospel of John. John is the author. He's the beloved disciple. He's a follower of Jesus. He's very selective about what he chooses to put into his book to talk about Jesus. In fact, at the end of the book, he tells us why he's picked what he has. This is... Uh, John 20, 31, he says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is saying, like, I picked these stories, I picked these scenes, uh, they're true, I witnessed them, and I've given you these ones because I want you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing you may find life and have life in his name. So near the end of this book, you've got these few chapters, John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. This section, John 13 through 17, some call it the upper room discourse because it's the words and the scene that took place when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples celebrating Passover right before he went to the cross. So it's, it took place in the upper room. So it's called the upper room discourse. And there's a lot of the words of Jesus. If you have a, a Bible that has the words of Jesus in red, there's a lot of red in this section. Some call this the farewell address of Jesus. Because again, these are the last words that we have recorded right before Jesus gets arrested and goes to the cross. So for the next uh, few weeks, between now and the start of Advent, we're going to spend some time here in this section, John 13 through 17. This is where I believe Jesus 
bears his heart to his disciples and I think for us. It's something that is remarkable taking place in this section, in this scene. And hopefully we can unpack it a bit more. What, what goes on here in John 13 through 17 is something that I long for more in my life. And I think I can speak on behalf of our elders too. It's something that we long for for our church. It's something that our C team has talked about in recent weeks. So we're going to go through these chapters more um, in depth in the weeks to come. Tonight's really an introduction to this. Uh, and so I just want to share uh, this one scene, this one section from John 17, verses 1 through 3. So here's what John writes. He says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus, again, in this scene, he looks up to heaven. Jesus speaks to the Father. He names that the hour has come. And in John's Gospel, the hour that he refers to is always talking about his death. So Jesus realizes that it's time for him to go to the cross. His hour has come. And when he speaks of his death, he asks the Father that he would be glorified. And then in verses 2 and 3, Jesus makes these really crazy, audacious declarations. And maybe you're familiar with this talk and familiar with this language, but I just encourage you maybe to listen with some fresh ears. What Jesus is saying here is huge. Verse 2, he's talking again. Jesus is talking to the Father, and he says, since you have given him, he's talking in the third person, since you've given him, Jesus, authority over all flesh, Jesus here is stating that he has authority. The Father has given Jesus authority, all authority. And in the authority of the Father that's been given to Jesus, Jesus then says that that authority allows Jesus to give eternal life to all whom the Father gives him. So Jesus has all authority, and now Jesus has the ability to give and bestow eternal life, which is a massive concept that we could spend a lot of time talking about. But I just want to point this piece out Jesus' definition of eternal life may be different than the one you're used to. And again, uh, maybe it's just me, maybe it's my background, uh, maybe it's because I was raised in a particular church or went to a certain Sunday school classes or certain church camps. But for me, growing up, when people talked about eternal life, eternal life was always about a destination, Eternal life, when it was taught to me, is about where do you go when you die? It's about what happens after death. And so if you trust in Jesus, will you go to heaven or will you go to hell? Will you pass from life to death? What happens? And so as I have kind of been formed in this, it's believe in Jesus, trust in him, and go to heaven when you die. And maybe you've heard John 3.16 before. For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal 
life. And in that, the coloring was always around destination. Do you believe in Jesus and will you go to heaven when you die? And please don't hear me wrong. Um, when Jesus speaks about eternal life, Yes, there, it includes what happens after you die. Heaven is real. The new heavens and the new earth are real. Hell is real. So that matters. And yet, listen to Jesus here. How does Jesus define eternal life? Because he says the Father's given him authority to give eternal life. And just in case you're wondering, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Maybe you could put it this way. Next slide. Jesus defines eternal life not so much as a destination, but a depth of relationship. Now again, it includes the destination. It includes what happens after you die. His grace is that magnificent. His saving work is that spectacular. But Jesus here says, I I, I can give eternal life, and here's what eternal life is. is, is knowing God. And you don't have to wait to die to experience that. Eternal life begins now. The offer, the great invitation of God through Jesus is that you would know him. That you would know the one true God. And that you would know Jesus Christ whom the Father has sent. And again, please, please don't twist what I'm saying. It includes the destination eternally. But some of us have gotten so focused on what happens after we die that we fail to live eternal life with Jesus now. And that's the great invitation. Life eternal, life of the ages. Jesus says this is eternal life that you would know God. But even that language is loaded. It has baggage. And again, this may just be all my baggage, but I'll put my baggage out there in case maybe it's some of your carry-on luggage too. Again, historically in my past, if someone talked to me about knowing God, if I hear the idea of knowing God, knowing God for me often has meant academic information. Right? Knowing God equals brains on a stick. Do you know the right doctrine? Do you know the right concepts? Have you heard the right verse or memorized the right information? Do you know God? Do you have a mental concept of God? That's not all that Jesus is offering. He's offering so much more. Eternal life is not merely a destination, but it's a real, intimate relationship with the one true God through Jesus Christ. It is real, it is experiential, it's for now, and it's intimate. That's the best word that I can use to describe it, is the word intimacy. Intimacy. And it may be a word that makes you a little uncomfortable. It may be a word, guys, that you're like, ugh, who wants to talk about intimacy? I'm a dude. Guys don't talk about intimacy. (laughs) The word that Jesus uses to say, this is eternal life, that he would know the one true God and Jesus whom he sent. Same word used elsewhere in the Gospels. I think I have this next slide. It's the word gnosko. It's the same word used in Luke 1 when Mary 
gets a conversation with the angel, and the angel says, you're having a baby, you're pregnant, and Mary, Luke 1.34 says, how could this be, for I have not known a man? And in Matthew's Gospel, same story about Mary. It says before she had known a man, she became pregnant. These two words, which refer to the process of having a baby, sexual intimacy between a man and a woman, same word, gnosko, that is used by Jesus here when he says this is eternal life, that they would know the one true God. That, my friends, is far more than just brains on a stick. That is far more than I know a couple Bible verses. I mentally assent to the idea that there may be a supreme being and maybe his name is Jesus. Far, far more than that. Again, the best word that I can use is intimacy. The offer is intimacy. This is not just academic, intellectual, doctrinal information about God. It is the promise of an eternal life which includes deep, meaningful intimacy with the one true God in your life today and into eternity. You're made. You and I are made. I'll contend our ache that I started with. Our ache is for intimacy. Our ache is to know God. And some of us don't know it, and some of us don't know how to express that or why we feel what we do. But the offer that Jesus has for you is that you would know God, that you would have intimacy with God cultivated in your life. (laughs) Intimacy. Intimacy is defined as close familiarity or friendship. But again, that doesn't even do justice. Like, I feel like I'm having to unpack like, almost every word that I use. Eternal life, what does that mean? Knowing God, what does that mean? Intimacy, what does that mean? Uh, the scholars that write about intimacy say, you know, that's, that's the right slide, say that there's four kinds of intimacy. And there's probably more than four, but these are the four main categories of intimacy. That there's experiential intimacy, there's emotional intimacy, intellectual intimacy, and there's sexual intimacy. But even that sounds clinical (laughs) and causes some people to be like, ah, I don't even know if I want to go down that road. But again, I believe that every human being is hardwired for intimacy. I just want to share a few stories with you that maybe will help unpack this for you. Here are some of the ways in which I experience intimacy in my life. And it's not just one of these. I had intimacy with my high school basketball team. And it wasn't sexual at all, just to be clear. But when I think about the concept of intimacy, the three three of the years of my high school basketball life come to mind for me. There were about a dozen guys. They were some of my closest friends. We spent so much time together. We practiced together. We sweat together. We worked together. We fought in practice at times together. 
Our common goal was to win together. As I've shared before with you, our, my senior year, we did go 26-0, and and we won the state championship on the floor of the kingdom in Seattle. And it was like this pinnacle of a journey with these guys. But even if we hadn't won the state championship, even if we had had a mediocre season, I had intimacy with those guys because we were working together for a common goal. We spent time together. There's this experiential intimacy. There are things that I did and experienced with those guys that nobody else experienced with me. So that now, 20-some years later, I could mention a name or a story, and it makes everyone crack up and laugh. I've never been in the military before, but I've heard it's similar there's stuff that you and the military went through with others, band of brothers, band of sisters, experiences, working toward a common goal with blood, sweat, and tears, some of the closest relationships on earth. That's intimacy. Anyone ever read Lord of the Rings before? Everyone ever seen the movies before? Maybe more? As, as Randy and I were talking about intimacy over the past year, that storyline came up a few times. Right? This idea of deep friendship, even as he's talking and was sharing about this idea of doing a retreat together and with those that he did that with, the idea of a journey, the idea of solidarity, uh, the idea of having a bond, being formed together, being willing to leave the comforts of home and join a quest that is bigger than yourself to throw the ring into the fire of Mordor. And those who quest together develop intimacy together. Have you ever journeyed together with someone in that way? I have intimacy with my kids and it's looked different during the stages of parenting with them. And it used to be, well, it still is cuddling at times, but cuddling with teenagers is a little harder as they get bigger. But it's cuddling with my kids, it's talking with my kids, it's hugging them and kissing them. In the teenage years, a lot of our intimacy has morphed into the joke, banter, ribbing each other kind of intimacy. And my kids love to make fun of me. And my kids love to make fun of my thinning hair. And they love to make fun of my particular routines, because every night around 10 o'clock, I go get a glass of water from the kitchen and eat some peanuts before I go to bed. And they're like, it's peanut time, Dad. How's your glass of water? A little late on that one. They love to poke at my idiosyncrasies and the weird things that I do. My daughter, Kelsey, has dubbed it love heckling. And I could get, well, sometimes I do get annoyed with her and her love heckling. But here's what I've come to appreciate about her love heckling, is that she notices me. She knows me. She's been watching me. She knows me enough to point out the idiosyncrasies that I've developed. Because there's intimacy there. There's something special between my wife and I. So last week, I was at the gym. I go to Thrive a few times a week. 
I was doing my cardio thing. I was on the elliptical machine, getting my calories burned. And I had struck up a conversation with the lady next to me on the, on the elliptical machine next to me, in part because my elliptical machine started squeaking, which was really annoying. Right? I couldn't tell if it was mine or hers, and so we struck up a conversation around the squeak, and so we were talking. She was probably in her 50s, small talking back and forth on the elliptical. So a a few minutes after the squeaking conversation, another woman comes and walks up in front of us both, and she turns and she looks up to me, and she smiles and says, hi, and waves, and then walks on by and goes upstairs. And about five seconds later, after she passed by the lady on the elliptical next to me, she goes, ooh, she gave you the eye. Well, the woman who walked in front of me was Callie. And we happened to come in two cars that day because she was attending a fitness class and I didn't want to wait around for her to finish. So we came into two cars, and it was my wife who walked in front of me, and it was my wife who looked at me and smiled and said hello. And she goes, ooh, she gave you the eye. And I, told, I, I had a choice to tell her. Like, well, did she? Well, tell me about that. I was like, yeah, that's my wife. And I'm glad that she still gives me the eye after 22 years of marriage. But what did she pick up on? She picked up on our intimacy. She picked up on that high and that wave that sent shockwaves through the gym. (laughs) 22 years of marriage shockwaves. 22 years of intimacy. So again, I, I just tell you some of these different stories because I know, I know my high school basketball team and I know my kids and I know my wife and I could give you other stories of intimacy. But what's going on in all of those situations is something even more deep and more profound than words can say. And my friends, I believe any of those examples and more only scratch the surface of what Jesus is talking about and his invitation to us in John 17. And it's not just about intimacy with other people, though I think that's part of it too. But the beginning offer, the beginning of the invitation is to know God and to cultivate intimacy with Jesus Christ as an expression of eternal life. This is actually the offer on you, the offer to you, is that you would know God. And this is something that I want now more than ever. And I want, I know the elders of our church, the leaders in our church, we want this for us to cultivate intimacy with God. And maybe you've heard us talk about our our vision statement about everyone experiencing Jesus and his kingdom come, or we've talked about our mission of being and making disciples. But again, when you keep drilling it down, this is the question we are, are coming to here, is how do we actually cultivate intimacy with God, with others, for others? And that's our desire, so we would know God. In, in, in the fullness of the sense of that word, 
that you would know what it means to journey with God, with others. That you would know what it's like to, to, uh, to share your hopes and dreams and fears, to be known in the deepest place with God. That you would know and taste the adventure of the life of the kingdom of heaven. That God actually invites you into working with Him and partnering with Him and building with Him and healing with Him the blood, sweat, and the tears of joining into the God life. Again, I'll repeat C.S. Lewis. I'm far too easily pleased. I can easily reduce this down to a formula. Did I believe the right thing so that I can go to heaven when I die and miss out on eternal life? And yes, it hurt. it's hard and there's an ache that we live in a world that is not as it should be. And there's a day when he comes back, when Jesus will come back and put the world to rights. That you've been made to know God. And that's not a churchy thing. If you're, if you're here tonight, maybe you're new to church or new to faith, this isn't just for Christians. <laughs> The invitation to believe, the invitation to know God is for all. Maybe that's why God has you here tonight. For you to begin to wonder and taste eternal life through Jesus. Jesus has come offering life, eternal life, intimacy with Father, Son, and Spirit. Centuries ago, there's a church father by the name of Augustine. He's from Africa, from Hippo, North Africa. Here's what he says. He says, to fall in love with God is the greatest romance. To seek Him, the greatest adventure. To find Him, the greatest human achievement. And I highlight that quote because in our human ache, we all want romance. We all want to be loved. But Augustine would say that what you're actually aching for in any of your romantic quests is to actually fall in love with God. And, and as humans, we long for adventure. We want, to, we want to experience new things and great things and grand things. And Augustine would say actually underneath that ache is, is actually a desire for adventure with God. And our desire is huge for achievement. We love to climb and find success and conquer new things. And yet Augustine would say that in all of that is actually a desire to, to find him. And that he has made himself be found in Jesus. So that all that we deeply ache for, all the things that we chase elusively in our world, find a root in God. Because you're made for life, eternal life, true life, life experienced in intimacy with Him. So I'm almost done. I hope maybe in this conversation around intimacy, I've whet your appetite a bit. And we are in the weeks to come. We're going to spend, we're going to listen to what Jesus has to say. I think there's a lot of what he has to say in John 13 through 17 that gets at the heart of this cultivation of intimacy with God that we've actually been invited into. Maybe tonight, because of 
this, you're sensing God's invitation to you, and maybe even tonight you say, I might be willing to give that a try. But here's an even bigger question then, if not just like, oh, this is what intimacy is, maybe a bigger question is like, how do I experience that? How do I do that then? How do I see it and taste it and feel it? Because I feel like I've tried before, maybe it hasn't gone so well. Well, I'm not going to tease you too much tonight. (laughs) I think in some ways the answer to that question will be talked about in the weeks to come, so you have to come back next week. But I, I will say this. I'll confess something that I don't know even at times if I have always helped us as a church in this. Here's what I mean by that. This past week, I was down in Portland at a training for a couple days on preaching and teaching. I was with a couple hundred pastors, and it was really good to be in a room with a bunch of other pastors. And one of the pastors who was speaking, he talked about, and this may sound abstract or big idea, but hear me out. He was talking about a working theory of change. Meaning, he says that every person and every church has a working theory of how change happens. Whether you've ever thought about that or not, we all have things that we think that we, if we do this or experience this, then it'll lead to something better. And he named his working theory of change that he had held for many years. I was like, ah, that sounds a little too familiar. And so this is what he said. He says, this has been his working theory of change in the past. Information plus inspiration plus willpower equals change. Just so you know, this is not an accurate theory of change. But he says in his tradition, and I can identify with it, that uh, oftentimes we have said, or I even maybe have said or taught, all you need is more information. Any problem that you have, the solution, more Bible study. Another sermon. More information. If you have a headache, read two Bible verses and call me in the morning. Again, I'm a Bible guy. But you won't just change by adding more information. Because a lot of us actually have more information than we're being obedient with right now. Information plus inspiration. And so... um, Sometimes we just need some hype and some pep and some motivation so we'll come to church like, I know what I need to change this week is more information about God and an environment that gets me fired up. Here we go. Let's go for Jesus one more week. Let's inspire everyone. And then we get a little, need to add some willpower to it, right? Just try a little harder, work a little harder, just do it. And willpower is not bad. This is what this pastor said. He said, willpower is not bad. The problem is, it only works on small issues and small problems, and it wears off through the day and throughout the week. Your willpower is probably the strongest in the morning when you first get up, and then it wears off as you go through the day. And so I think in some ways I just want to name that even I have and our church at times has unintentionally reinforced this, that here's, if you want to know God, if you want to experience God, you need to get some more information, a little more inspiration, a little more willpower, and bada bing, bada boom, 
you'll change. And maybe at times we've had other um, pieces that we would have added to the equation. I think there's a season in our church life where like, gospel community. Any problem in your life, get into a gospel community and it'll be fixed. And we're like, nope. But then if we do these things and they don't work, and then we wonder why. Again, to tease you maybe a bit more in this, but I believe that John 13 through 17 points in a different direction. And Jesus' offer toward us is real, and it's true, and we can change, and we can know God, and we can experience intimacy with him. But it isn't just by getting more information and getting more inspiration and more willpower. I think it would be helpful for us to talk about what might help for us to experience change and growth if Jesus really was serious when he said, the Father has given me authority to give eternal life, and this is eternal life that you would know the one true God. And I want us to change the narrative, because right now the narrative of our world is just like COVID-centric, and I believe we need to be wise, we need to be mindful. Um, But I want the narrative of our church this fall to be around how do we know and experience intimacy with God? Because actually I think that... uh, we have everything that we need to cultivate that even before COVID ends. May we cultivate what we've been made for with God, with others, for others. His invitation is good. And pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, Our hearts long for more. There's something about what you said in John 17 that I want so desperately to be true. And I want to know it, and I want to see it, I want to taste it, I want to feel it, I want to experience, I want to journey with you in this. I want to have you know me from the inside out. I want to walk with you, God. And know you in the fullness of intimacy. Well, I imagine there are others who have a different ache expressed in different ways, with different patterns of coping that want that too. So, God, I pray that you'd meet us, show us, lead us, redirect us. Invite us deeper, further into the mystery that is Father, Son, and Spirit. So lead us, we ask. Change us, we ask. May we know you more. We pray this, God, for others in our city that they too would know you. You'd meet them in their places of ache. And pray this tonight in the name of Jesus.